Well, we are studying the crucifixion here for the season of Lent. And we are going to do every verse from the time Jesus is on the cross until the resurrection, uh, which gets us into trouble today. Because today's passage is one of the hardest, one of the most mysterious in the entire Gospel of Matthew. Um, It's frankly got some wild stuff that happens to us. And any smart pastor would skip these verses and act like they weren't there. But you don't have one of those, so... Here we go. Um, It opens windows, these scriptures do, into things we don't fully understand. Uh, It opens windows into things that seem unreal to us. So let's get started. Jesus is on the cross in his final moments. Matthew 27, verse 50. Then Jesus shouted out again and released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart, and tombs opened. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city of Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. So how many folks here uh, have never, particularly on that last part, have never heard a sermon on these verses in church before? Yeah, see, quite a lot. You all had smarter preachers back then. But uh, here it is, okay? The curtain tears in two, there's an earthquake, rocks split open, and dead people wake up, go into the city, and appear to many people. This stretches our imagination beyond where many of us may be willing to go. But I want to encourage you this morning here in this safe place, to take a risk. Let's use our imagination just a little. We're not going to marry anything here today, but we're going to use our imagination and see where it takes us and see how we feel when we get there. All right? So I'm going to break this sermon into three sections. The first section is going to be for things the Scripture might be saying to us. And then I want to tell you one thing the Scripture is not saying to us. And then we'll end with some certainties, some things the Scripture is definitely saying to us. So that's how we're going to roll. And so let's start with what the Scripture might be saying to us. So we'll start again in verse 50. Then Jesus shouted out again and released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now this is a knowing Jesus through the Old Testament moment. Because the way the temple was constructed, they had a court that went all the way around it for worship and for prayer, and any Jew could go there. But inside, they had a sectioned off uh, part called the holy place, and that is where only priests could go. But inside that, they had a further subdivided most holy place called the holy of holies. Only the high priest could go in there, and only once a day, uh, once a day, once a year, once a year on the Day of Atonement. Now, in front of that most holy place uh, is what they called the veil. It was actually a super thick, ornately woven wool curtain. It represented the line between God and humanity, but a line that God invited humanity to cross once a year to receive this one thing, the assurance of forgiveness of sin. That's the curtain that is torn in two from its top to its bottom at the moment of Jesus' death. Now, we're here to ask, why? What did that mean? Well, it might mean God is tearing his clothes in anguish. Back then, uh, when people got really upset, they would tear their clothes as an expression of anger. 
And God has something to be upset about. Humanity has just committed the worst sin ever. I mean, it's one thing to murder someone, but it's another thing to murder someone you know. It's another thing still to murder someone you love. It's another thing still to murder one of your own family members. But to murder one's own God. Perhaps God is tearing his anguish at this great sin. It might also mean that uh, God is giving his judgment on this temple. You know, Jesus has been predicting for weeks that this temple is going to be destroyed someday. God had given them in the Old Testament the tabernacle, and later they turned it into the temple. And it was to be a sign of God's presence among them. God's offer to let humans cross the veil and experience his real forgiving presence. But they have turned it into the temple into something else. They've turned it into a sign of national pride. They've turned it into a sign of their superiority to other nations, their superiority to other races. On this day, the priests who work in that temple have arranged for God's Son to be crucified to preserve their own power. So, the veil is torn. Elvis has left the building. Now, 40 years after this happens, this temple is destroyed by the Romans. And everyone, it lays in rubble to this very day. Or perhaps the tearing of the curtain is meant to show us a more hopeful picture. That God's forgiving presence, because of the death of Jesus, can now be offered to the whole world. The curtain is torn and the Holy Spirit is set free upon the world. The Holy of Holies is no longer big enough to hold His offer of grace. You can receive forgiveness and you can receive the presence of God wherever you are now because of that cross. Even in the chair you're sitting in and the platform I'm standing on, you and I can receive His forgiveness. It's everywhere. All right, that's three different meanings. Which is it? I can't say for sure because this is the part of the sermon for things that Scripture might be showing us. But let me ask you this. Does it have to be only one? Why not two out of three or three out of three? God tears his clothes in anguish at the death of his son and pronounces his judgment on the failure of the temple and sets his spirit of forgiveness free upon the earth. It's there for you to think on. As we go on to verse 51, the earth shook and rocks split apart. Okay, I did a little research. The last five years, there have been five earthquakes felt in the city of Jerusalem between 3.5 and 5.5 on the Richter scale, so significant. In 2008, Jerusalem felt uh, 16 quakes. So quakes happen there. But this one, coinciding with the moment of Jesus' death, kind of sends a little shiver up our spine because it might mean that Jesus is tied to all creation. We are learning every day about things that are connected in this world that we previously thought had no connection to one another. So I used to be a science teacher, so wherever I go, I always bring a science video. And so watch this one about the profound effect that wolves, wolves had had on the Yellowstone National Park just in the last 25, 23, I should say, years since they've been reintroduced. Look for the connections of things that uh, we thought were previously unconnected. Let's watch this together.
One of the most exciting scientific findings of the past half century has been the discovery of widespread trophic cascades. A trophic cascade is an ecological process which starts at the top of the food chain and tumbles all the way down to the bottom. And the classic example is what happened in the Yellowstone National Park in the United States when wolves were reintroduced in 1995. Now, we, we all know that wolves kill various species of animals, but perhaps we're slightly less aware that they give life to many others. Before the wolves turned up, they'd been absent for 70 years. That the numbers of deer, because there was nothing to hunt them, had built up and built up in the Yellowstone Park. And despite efforts by humans to control them, they'd managed to reduce much of the vegetation there to almost nothing. They'd just grazed it away. But as soon as the wolves arrived, even though they were few in number, they started to have the most remarkable effects. First, of course, they killed some of the deer, but that wasn't the major thing. Much more significantly, they radically changed the behavior of the deer. The deer started avoiding certain parts of the park, the places where they could be trapped most easily, particularly the valleys and the gorges. And immediately, those places started to regenerate. In some areas, the height of the trees quintupled in just six years. Bare valley sides quickly became forests of aspen and willow and cottonwood. And as soon as that happened, the birds started moving in. The number of songbirds and migratory birds started to increase greatly. The number of beavers started to increase because beavers like to, to eat the trees. And beavers, like wolves, are ecosystem engineers. They create niches for other species. And the dams they built in the rivers um, provided habitats for otters and muskrats and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians. The wolves killed coyotes and as a result of that, the number of rabbits and mice began to rise, which meant more hawks, more weasels, more foxes, more badgers. Ravens and bald eagles came down to feed on the carrion that the wolves had left. Bears fed on it too, and their population began to rise as well, partly also because there were more berries growing on the regenerating shrubs. And the bears reinforced the impact of the wolves by killing some of the calves of the deer. Here's where it gets really interesting. The wolves changed the behavior of the rivers. They began to meander less. There was less erosion. The channels narrowed. More pools formed. More riffle sections, all of which were great for wildlife habitats. The rivers changed in response to the wolves. And the reason was that the regenerating forests stabilized the banks so that they collapsed less often, so that the rivers became more fixed in their course. Similarly, by driving the deer out of some places and the vegetation recovering on the valley sides, there was a soil erosion because the vegetation stabilized that as well. So the wolves, small in number, transformed not just the ecosystem of the Yellowstone National Park, this huge area of land, but also its physical geography. None of that was predicted ahead of time. No one knew. All of the, that was connected together. 
So the world of science is trying to help us understand the creator and all the connections that exist. Uh, I could go to the world of science fiction, with your permission. I could talk a little Star Trek. I'm going to need a thumb up or a thumb down on this one. Do you want Star Trek or you want me to move on to the next thing? All right, I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot of thumbs up and a ton of abstentia. No, no. All right, well, you, you had your chance to use your voice and you passed it over. So, how many of you have seen Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock? All right. Uh, how many of you at least know who Spock is? Good enough. So, um, Star Trek Three is not the best Star Trek movie, but here's what happened. In the previous movie, Spock dies. Sorry, spoiler alert, you had 30 years. Um, <laughs> Spock dies, but they leave his body on a planet. It's a, it's a dead planet. There's no life there. But they shoot a device at the planet that's supposed to reorganize all matter on the planet to make it habitable again, a living planet. Anybody remember what the device is called? Yes, the Genesis, right? Be- first book of the Bible where creation happens. So they do this as an experiment, but what they don't know is that the device also raises Spock from the dead as a baby and weaves him into the fabric of the world. So as Spock grows rapidly, the planet grows rapidly. As Spock becomes a hormonal, unstable teenager, the planet experiences earthquakes. They are tied together. The Scripture suggests to us this morning that the earth and Jesus are tied together. Actually, not the earth, but the entire universe. Here's a few scriptures. John chapter 1, verse 3. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. But for us, there is one God, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. And the grand prize comes in Colossians 1.17. He existed before anything else, and He holds all creation together. Perhaps when we strike out at Jesus, we are striking out at the very foundation of the universe that holds it together. When we drive nails into His hands and a spear into His side, the ground quivers When he cries out in anguish, rocks fly apart. These are the things the passage might be saying to us. And then the strangest part, verse 52, tombs opened. The bodies of many godly men and women who have died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city of Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. Now, Matthew is the only gospel of the four to describe this event at all. And he only gives it two verses. So a question is, uh, why doesn't he say more about something so incredible? And why don't the other gospel writers, Mark, Luke, or John, say anything about this at all? I have a suggestion for you, which I'll illustrate. But my suggestion why is that when it comes to this sort of of an event, what can you say? What can you say? Um, and, and here's why. I have, a, I have a miraculous story from my life that I don't tell very often anymore, but I'm going to share it with you. So when I was in college, uh, I was part of a Christian martial arts federation, and we had a sister school in Springfield. So sometimes we would drive to Springfield, and we'd spend the whole week um, doing prayer and, and, and martial arts with our brothers in Christ and brothers in the martial arts. So we were driving to Springfield. I was in college. My uh, a brother was in uh, high school. 
and I was driving the jalopy that I drove in college. We got about an hour and a half from Springfield, and the temperature gauge needle buried itself in overheat, like pull over right now or it's gone. So we, we pulled over, and I opened the hood, and the steam was coming out and all of that, and I went and got some water and put it in, but actually the fluids were fine, so we let the car cool down. And I started it again and watched it heat up, and it went all the way over to overheat. So we shut it back down again. This is pre-cell phone, no one to come rescue us. So um, my brother and I, we just bowed our head and prayed. I started the car, and it warmed up. It got to the top end of normal, but it stopped. So we pulled out onto the highway, and it stayed there. We drove an hour and a half on into Springfield. It stayed there. We got into town, got into the neighborhood. When we turned onto the street where we were going to be staying for a week, the needle went and shot over into overheat as we glided in front of the house. Now, there are lots of mechanical explanations for how that whole sequence of events could happen. I'm just telling you, from where we were sitting in the car, praying our way to Springfield, it did not feel like that. But I've kind of quit telling this story because someone's always quick to provide me with a reason naturally why that could happen. You know, the story just means something to me and my brother who were there, but it doesn't mean a lot to other people. Matthew, I think, is doing the same with the story of those coming out of the tomb on Easter morning. First of all, how would they even know who these people were, even if they were famous Old Testament saints. There were no photographs of people like that to verify. If someone claiming to be King David did knock on your door on Easter morning and tell you the Messiah has come, he is risen, you would uh, perhaps have a miraculous feeling about what had gone on, but even you yourself wouldn't really know. Is this King David or is this someone from the Renaissance Festival or, or some crazy homeless guy? Even if it was one of your own relatives, a grandmother, a grandfather perhaps, who had been awaiting the Messiah and they woke up from the dead to tell you they had come. That would certainly mean something to you, but could you tell anyone else about it? I mean, what would they, wouldn't mistaken identity just be an easier explanation? So I think three of our gospel writers just leave this story alone, but Matthew, he takes a chance. He shares it with us just like I took a chance and shared my story with you. Here's what happened. Keeps it short and sweet, and then you decide. Because what else can you do with a story like that? So our minds are very open at this moment. If you're doing it right, your imagination's really alive to a lot of possibilities. Uh, But a wise person around here often says, uh, you can have your mind so open that your brains fall out, you know. So I just want to point out a, a, a place where we should not go because we'd be, if we go here, we'll be violating other more clear parts of Scripture. I want to tell you at least one thing this Scripture is definitely not saying. And that regards the part where the earth shook and rocks split apart. So the earth here is in some way responding to the death of its creator, but the earth is not shuddering because a part of it has died. Uh, Now, there are many ancient religions you probably know about that worship matter and energy. Um, Many Native American spiritualities, some versions of witchcraft, Hinduism. These religions say that the universe is God. And vibrating through the universe is an energy that connects us all, meaning we are all part of God, just trying to figure that out. So that is called pantheism. Pantheism is a word that means God is everything and everything is God. 
But our Christian scriptures don't really start there. Now, let me just bring back the verses we've already read. John chapter 1. God created everything through him. Nothing was created except through him. Colossians 1, 7. He existed before anything else. And he holds all creation together. So in Christian theology, God is in love with creation, but he is separate from it. It is connected to him as a child is connected to a parent, but parents and children are still distinct beings with separate wills. You may find as you grow older that you're becoming an awful lot like your dad, but you are not actually your dad. That is not possible, not even in Arkansas. So, now, now, now creation... Creation and the Creator are perhaps not as separate as we thought based on this passage, but they are still distinct. Christians are not, are not pantheists. So that's something the Scripture is not saying. So everyone, you have imagined well. I, I'm proud of you. Um, our passage has had some mysterious parts that opened up our mind, maybe to some new ways of thinking about God. But I want to spend the time we have left on some certainties then. Let's uh, talk about some things that this passage is definitely saying. Verse 50. Then Jesus shouted out again and released his spirit. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. Many gospels say so, even Matthew. And he was not surprised by this moment. He predicted it many times. The way Jesus read the Old Testament told him the Messiah must suffer for the sins of the world. And so he did it willingly. And we should be in awe of his obedience and his sacrifice. Because this moment that should have brought the judgment of God upon us brought us a response we did not expect. He forgave us. And if he can forgive the horror of the crucifixion, then he can forgive you and I all of our failings. If he can forgive the cross, then he can forgive you and I all of our failings. All of them. Verse 51, at the moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Whatever else it means, it means everything has just changed. At the death of Christ, the whole universe of relating to God just got reorganized. There is now a new way. Jesus now becomes the most holy place of God. He becomes the temple of God. The place where you go to meet with God, to be assured that he forgives and accepts you. And not just once a year, all year is now all that is found in Jesus. In fact, much later in the Bible, we find another preacher picking up on this and writing it in what we now call Hebrews chapter 10. Says, and so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. This leads us to some of those more disturbing parts. The earth shook and rocks split apart. If this happened, this means that Jesus is really real. You know, I said at the start of this message that these supernatural events make us feel like God is less real. But actually, I wonder if the opposite is actually true. I wonder if these passages make us feel like God is 
too real. If we, not might be, if we might not be uncomfortable with a God who's this real, that he is attached to everything, even physical things in the universe. I think of all the things just in my lifetime that we have begun to learn are connected, even though we used to think they weren't. And our response has typically been that it makes us mad. It makes us mad to learn that sleep deprivation can lead to depression. Because we just want to stay up late and watch some Jimmy Fallon. And we learned that that can lead to depression. That makes us mad. That doesn't seem fair. I should be allowed to torture my body and not have it affect my mind. But too bad, it does. That's real. We have learned that stress and worry can cause everything from facial paralysis to some forms of infertility to some forms of cancer. That makes us mad. I remember when I was a kid and all the stress science was first coming out. And old people used to laugh at it. Ah, oh, stress. Everybody's stressed. Nobody laughing anymore. Nobody's laughing anymore. My mind is a swirl with anxiety. That seems not fair that, that, that my brain should get to wreck my body. But it does. Too bad that it's not fair. That's real. So what do we really think of a God who's so connected to the real world that when he dies, the earth shakes? It means he's real, super real, more real than anything we've ever experienced in reality. And it sets up scenarios like this. Well, we break a commandment and tell a bunch of lies and our immune system quakes with guilt and that makes us sick. That can happen. We let the sun go down in our anger at home. We lose the ability to function and concentrate at work. We wish home and work could be separate, but they're not. Also, the positive, we confess our lie and we stop feeling depressed and anxious. That happens for some people. We deal with our anger at home and we start getting better and stronger in our career. Why should following him or not following him Send these shockwaves through creation around us. Why should ignoring Him or paying attention to Him affect us so profoundly in all these different ways? Well, it's because He's so real. And now for the part that we thought would be the hardest to understand, but I think is going to turn out to actually be the easiest to explain. Verse 52, the tombs opened. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city of Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. Well, Jesus' death defeats death. In fact, 40 hours after this moment, he's going to raise from the dead on the tomb on Easter morning and claim the prize for his victory. And so at the moment of death's defeat, a shockwave of victory goes out. A tear in the veil between the living and the dead. At ground zero of death's defeat, a burst of resurrection power blasts out, awakening men and women who knew this day would come. They wake up from their long sleep. They go into Jerusalem on Easter morning and they begin to tell people the long-awaited promise has been kept. We should have expected this from the same God who sent angels to visit shepherds at the birth of Christ because somebody ought to know what's happening in Bethlehem. 
There ought to be a celebration on this night. Well, now, a few days before Easter, he sends those who have waited for eternal life to proclaim, it's here. I think perhaps God just couldn't help himself. The veil is torn, the rocks split apart, the tombs are opened. And this offer comes to you and I this morning. From the God who is more real than anything real we ever think we have experienced. And do you accept the offer of eternal life that's offered to you? Do you accept the forgiveness that is offered to you? This is the question before you. Will you keep walking in your own ways or walk in his ways? Because everything's changing. Everything's changing around that cross and it's time to declare yourself. If you declare yourself for him, that is going to send shockwaves through your life, touching things you had no idea it would touch. If you walk out of here ignoring it, putting it off, that will also send shockwaves through your life, affecting things you never thought it would affect. Now this can be a scary moment. A real God comes into your real life and says, hey, it's time to choose. Choose today. You've heard enough. you got a few more questions, don't we all? But you can choose. Yet he's the God who knew we would be scared. And so he made a way to reach us even though we are afraid. Listen to this story from Philip Yancey. One raw winter night, the man heard an irregular thumping sound against the kitchen storm door. He went to the window and watched as tiny shivering sparrows, attracted to the evident warmth inside, beat in vain against the glass. Touched, the farmer bundled up and trudged through the fresh snow to open the barn for the struggling birds. He turned on the lights, tossed some hay in the corner, sprinkled a trail of saltine crackers to direct them to the barn. But the sparrows, which had scattered in all directions when he emerged from the house, still hid in the darkness, afraid of him. He tried various tactics, circling behind the birds to drive them toward the barn, tossing cracker crumbs in the air toward them, retreating into his house to see if they'd flutter into the barn on their own. Nothing worked. He, a huge alien creature, had terrified them. The birds could not understand that he actually desired to help. He withdrew to his house and watched the doomed sparrows through the window. As he stared, a thought hit him like a lightning from a clear blue sky. If only I could become a bird, one of them, just for a moment, then I wouldn't frighten them so. I I could show them the way to warmth and safety. At the same moment, another thought dawned on him. He had grasped the whole principle of the incarnation of Jesus. A man becoming a bird is nothing compared to God becoming a man. The concept of a sovereign being as big as the universe he created, confining himself to a human body, was and is too much for some people to believe. And yet if you were trying to save frightened humans and invite them into warmth and safety, wouldn't you come up with an idea a lot like that? He knew we'd be afraid if, he knew how, if we knew how real he was. So he made himself one of us so we could know and come to know him in the person of his son, Jesus. He will never stop pursuing you. Even if it means dying on a cross, he's already demonstrated that. 
The question is, will we stop running away and hiding in the darkness? Will we turn and embrace the Savior whose love for us faced death and defeated it? It's the season of Lent. We have a cross at the back of the room for reflection. So at this time, let's turn and stand and face the cross. We're going to have a couple of moments of silence. And and during this silence, ask God, are there ways that I'm ignoring you or running from you and it is sending shockwaves into parts of my life that I think have nothing to do with that? And if there are, show them to me, God, and help me to turn that around. You could also ask God, God, are there ways that following you has sent shockwaves of blessing through my life and I haven't given you thanks for how this affected that? And I want to give you thanks. You can do that. If you want, you can stay where you are. You can go to that cross. There's foam around it for you to kneel on. I think you'll remember this better if you do, but you don't have to. You can do what you want. If you get tired of standing, you can sit down. You can do whatever you want because God is everywhere because of that cross. Today, if you want to follow the way of Jesus, it's actually not as hard as you may think. You can stay where you are if you want. I think you'll remember it better if you go to that cross, though. But it's up to you because he's everywhere. But you can say, God, ignoring you and doing it my way has sent shockwaves through my life that I think have touched a lot of things in a bad way. And that's confessing your sin. That's saying your own way has made your life unmanageable. And then you say, Lord, I want to follow your ways. And I keep hearing about this Holy Spirit. Would you send this Holy Spirit to help me walk in that way? And I will do that for the rest of my life. And that's making him Lord. And that's it. Confess your sins. Make him Lord. Start on the journey. It's just like that. Where you are standing, where you are sitting, there around that cross kneeling, whatever you think will make that moment memorable for you. You do that. So we'll give you a couple moments to do whatever business with God you like. And then when the band leads us in worship, we can all turn and face the front again and worship together. I leave you to God. So let us stand together and here's a prayer all about. Then Lord, surround me with your presence and let it do what it will. Let us pray together. Christ, as a light, illumine and guide me. Christ, as a shield, overshadow me. Christ, under me. Christ, over me. Christ, beside me, on my left and my right. This day, be within and without me, lowly and meek, yet all-powerful. Be in the heart of each to whom I speak, in the mouth of each who speaks unto me. This day, be within and without me, lowly and meek, yet all-powerful. Christ as a light, Christ as a shield, Christ beside me on my left and my right. Surrounded in his presence, go wherever he leads you. Amen.